Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. What I want to talk about tonight is the purpose of correction in the body of Christ. I know that we know some about it, but I think we probably need to be reminded of it and maybe look a little deeper. <clears throat> what we're going to do is look at what the Word says about it so that we understand that it's God's will that there would be correction among the people of God and why there would be correction among the people of God. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for number one, teaching, number two, reproof, number three, for correction, and number four, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The first one it mentions as the Scripture being inspired is profitable for is for teaching. The Word of God is the only worthwhile basis for teaching the truth and revealing to us what the will of God is and the nature of God, what it's like, what's God like, and who God really is at heart, to know Him, to understand Him, to know what He thinks and how He looks at things, and also to know the purpose for our very lives here on earth. The Word of God serves all those purposes in teaching. This is why it's so important to be in the Word, to read the Word, to study the Word, and to meditate upon the Word day and night, like it says in the Scripture. So, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that is piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So that's what the Word of God is able to do. It's able to go a lot deeper than just something superficial. The Word of God is able to go directly into the motive and intention of our hearts. That's why that we need to know the Word, believe the Word, speak the Word, study the Word, and understand the Word, so that our hearts can be exposed and that our motives of our hearts can be exposed so that we can repent of anything we need to. When Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and the devil offered him all kinds of things, you know, he, he always quoted the Word. And when he was very, very hungry after 40 days and thirsty, he hadn't eaten or drank anything for 40 days, the devil offered to him, since he knew Jesus had the power, to turn the stones into bread. But Jesus' answer went like this. He said to him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. So there's a real strong point there. We must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We don't live by our feelings. We don't live by our emotions. 
We don't live by our opinions or other people's opinions or the various teachers of the word that sometimes are misled, but we, we, we live, we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In 2 Timothy 2.15 it says this, Study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, it is shameful if someone is a Christian and they don't really study the Word or know the Word, and if they've been a Christian for some time and they don't really know what God is saying, it is really very shameful because they're really in ignorance and darkness and they're easily deceived and misled. And they're often misled by other false teachers and sometimes by their own feelings and thoughts and their own reasonings. That's why it's so important to study so you'll have no reason to be ashamed. Romans 10.17 also says, concerning the Word, it says, For then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So we're supposed to have faith. If you don't have the Word of God in you, if you don't know what God has said, if you don't know what the truth is, how in the world can you have faith? It says in Hebrews 11, it's impossible to please God without faith. So there we go. There's another reason why the Word of God is profitable for teaching. So anyway, how are we going to know who God is? We're supposed to know Him. Not just know that He exists, but we're supposed to know His heartbeat. How would God look at a certain situation? Sometimes we have to make decisions. We're offered uh, choices and is this the right thing or is that the right thing? Is this the better or is this the best thing? And so how are we going to make those decisions? unless we know the heart of God. Also, we don't want to be in ignorance, like I said before. We also need to be able to discern false doctrines when they come our way. We need to be able to know right from wrong in every situation. We need to be able to stand in time of temptation. When we're being tempted to stand by the Word of God, what does it say? And also, we need to have faith to believe that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He'll do. If you don't know the Word of God, if the Word of God is not in you, how can these things work? How can they work? Some of you may have already noticed that I handed out or had Kevin to hand out those uh, annual Bible reading sheets. And we started this in our little, in our own home group recently, and I think it's a very good thing to do. I think it'd be good for everybody. So I hand them out as an encouragement, not as a law, but as an encouragement to stimulate us to read more, to really get a bigger, bigger picture of who God is and how He's always operated with His people from the beginning of time even to now. So this will, this will maybe get every one of us in the habit of reading the Word every day and following a guide, it's a, it's a good way to go. So, the second thing that the Scriptures are profitable for is for reproof. What is reproof? Reproof is like a rebuke. It is to strongly express blame or fault directly to the person who's doing wrong to express sharp disapproval or criticism of someone because of their behavior or their actions. 
So the Word of God is profitable for addressing wrongdoing on the part of any believer. Luke 17.3, Jesus said this, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Psalms 141.5 says, Let the righteous smite me with kindness and reprove me. It is all upon my head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. So there's a picture that smiting, it sounds like a harsh thing. You know, for someone, it's almost like if you, you know, see when someone who's hysterical and somebody comes up and slaps them to get them out of it. It's kind of like when you're, when you're in deception and you're in sin and your brother or your sister come up and they smite you with truth. They rebuke you for being where you are. They rebuke you for your compromise, for your sin. That is the love of God coming through them. It's like it's all healing all upon your head. Don't let your head refuse it, it says. <clears throat> Proverbs 27.5 says this. It says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. One version says love that is hidden. And it goes on to say, Faithful are the wounds, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So, you want a friend? Do you want to know what a friend is? A friend is somebody that will look at you and tell you where you're wrong. A friend is someone that will confront you over your sin. Why does that make them a friend? Because they are trying to wake you up and turn you away from the very thing that's going to kill you. Because the wages of sin are still death. It says also in Proverbs 3.11 it says, My son do not neglect or do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. You know there's a problem with the flesh. We got to really watch it that we don't get in the flesh. A lot of times when somebody's being reproved they want to get defensive, they want to be argumentative, they want to justify themselves, they want to make 19 excuses rather than just do like King David did when Nathan the prophet went to him and said, I'm the man. Don't reject reproof. Don't argue against it. Accept it. The purpose of it is to save your life. He goes on to say, for whom the Lord loves, He reproves. So there's the love of God that He would reprove His own people, His own children. He would reprove them when they do wrong or when they don't do what they're supposed to do either way. Even if they're just passive. It's not that they necessarily did something wrong. They just didn't do what He told them to do. There's people that are neglectful of the very instruction that God has given them. They didn't go out and just murder somebody or commit some horrible act or do something immoral. They just didn't do anything. Like the wicked lazy servant in Matthew 25 that was cast out of the kingdom because he did nothing. And so we've got to be careful that we make sure that we understand that reproof is love. It says, even a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 12, 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's a pretty strong statement. If you hate being corrected, if you hate reproof, 
It says you're stupid. Wow. Proverbs 15.31 says, he, he whose ear listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So if you listen to reproof, it'll make you wise. If you don't, it'll make you a fool. Proverbs 6.23 says this, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. So there's life in it. So, to sum it all up, so reproof slash rebukes are a good thing. The basis for these reproofs, though, should come from a basis of Scripture to correct wrongdoing and not just for, from some personal reasons to get back at someone. You see, you need to be sure that when you're rebuking or reproving or correcting someone that you're doing it because you are concerned for them and you're concerned for what's right and you want that to get fixed. Not because they disappointed you personally or you have some personal issue with them. That's a whole different matter. So, the second thing, the next thing uh, after the, the all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, the next thing is for correction, which is really along the same lines as reproof, but we're going we're gonna to give it more of a gentle approach because it's not as strong as reproof. It says that, first of all, the definition for correction is discipline given to help a believer who has wandered off the path of life and to get him back on track. You know, we as believers sometimes we get sidetracked and we're going along on the path of life, you know, is very narrow. And it's, it's really easy to get off the path if you don't watch what you're doing. There's different ways that you can get off the path. There's even other trails that look like they're going to be a shortcut. Or you think you can just, you, you, sometimes you forget some of the things you've learned and you make mistakes and you get off path. So, correction then can, can include basic things just like instruction, like being re-instructed. You know, sometimes with our children we have to re-instruct them on the things we've already instructed on before because they've gotten off track. The same with the children of God. Sometimes they need to be re-instructed and reminded. So, correction is some of that. It also can include constructive criticism. In other words, pointing out what's wrong and why it's wrong. It can also be just a reminder of the truth that seems to have been forgotten. And it can also include a strong word of rebuke or reproof. So correction is kind of a multifaceted way to try to just get somebody straightened out and back on the narrow path that they should have been on to start with. Some of you know that I used to be a pilot. I was an active pilot flying for about 20 years. Once on a trip, I was flying back from Kentucky with my friend Max as my co-pilot. And we were both distracted because we were working on the GPS uh, autopilot. There was some kind of problem with it and we were trying to figure it out. And so we got distracted and I had already been given specific instruction by air traffic control of the heading, the number of degrees which I was supposed to be flying on to get to my destination and to stay clear of all other air traffic. But because I was distracted and I was the pilot and me and Max were fooling with that autopilot, 
I got off track. And I began veering off course. And as I stayed off course for a little while, you see, when you're going pretty fast, and you get off course just one or two degrees, and you fly 30 or 50 miles off one or two degrees, then you're way off from your course. At some point, air traffic control called me up on the radio. And they said, hey, 55197, where are you going? In a real strong, stern voice. And I said to Chattanooga, it says, well, you're off course. Why are you off course? Then I had to admit that I had been distracted. So he gave me a new heading to fly to get me back on the track I was supposed to be on. And he corrected me and he rebuked me. And I was humbled. But the purpose of that was to save lives. Because there's other planes up there and they're going in different directions. And I could have collided with one of them because I wasn't on my path, the narrow path that I belonged on. You see, it's the same with the people of God. When you get off path, off track, sometimes you need someone to come and wake you up, get you back on path so you won't die. And so other people won't die. And so how much more important is a soul when you get it off course than an airplane? In James chapter 5, verse 19, James said, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, Israel was God's people. Historically, they were called God's people. They were a type of the church today. But the problem with Israel in the history of their, of their being here on earth before Jesus came was they were very stubborn, very rebellious, very idolatrous, and very disobedient to God. In Jeremiah verse, chapter 7, verse 27, the Lord said to Jeremiah, says, You shall speak all these words to them, that is to Israel, my people, but they will not listen to you, and you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, This is a nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. So that's how God felt about them not listening to Him, about, about them not obeying Him, about them not being willing to be corrected. Because, you know, the Lord, He attempted on many, many, many occasions to correct Israel. Even says in one place, He said, I set my prophets rising early, daily to you, but you would not listen, you would not repent. And so this was the state of Israel. And this is the state of America today, and this is the state of the American Christianity Church today, is it still full of sin and rebellion to God, even though it has a form of godliness, but it doesn't have any power over sin. Hebrews 12.1 says this, therefore, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
Now I can envision this, and I hope you can. All that have gone before us, all the righteous men and women that have gone before us, they're like this cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And they're saying, come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. You know, there's Peter, Paul, James, and John, and all the prophets, and all the righteous women, and all the godly people that ever lived before us. They were our example. They gave their lives to God. They followed Him faithfully. And all those are surrounding us. If we could just see it and just imagine, they're saying to us, come on, don't be like this. Let's go. Let's run the race to win. And so he says, as a result of this, let us lay aside every encumbrance. An encumbrance, let me tell you what an encumbrance is. An encumbrance is that thing you make an excuse over. The Lord said to do whatever is giving you instruction. And you say, well, I was afraid, or I'm not skilled, or my husband didn't do this, or my wife didn't do that, or I, I had to work, or I had this, or I had that, or I didn't feel good. And so every encumbrance is that thing you're making excuses over. Is that one thing, or that other thing, or those number of things that you're allowing you to stop doing what God has called you to do, or what He's told you to do. Right there in your own home, in your own family, in the body of Christ, or whatever He's told you to do, this is the very thing that's keeping you from doing it, is the encumbrance. It, you know what an encumbrance is? It's a little challenge. It's a little difficulty. It's something that's not necessarily easy and so you let it stop you. But he said, lay it aside. Lay aside every encumbrance. And he said, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Lay it aside. What is it that so easily entangles us? What is it that our heart goes after if we don't watch ourselves? What is the sin that we so easily besets us? He said, lay it aside. And let us run the race. Let us run it with endurance. The race that's set before us. Let's run it wide open. Let's run it wholehearted. Let's run it until the finish. Let's run it till the end. Let's run it. And he says, doing so, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father at the, on the throne of God. For consider him, Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So when you think it's hard for you, think about what he went through. Remember what he did. Remember how he endured the persecutions and the rejection, and how he endured the suffering of the cross, and how even his own disciples at times left him and left him with only a few when he had many disciples. Look at what he went through. The world rejected him. His own people, the Jews, rejected him. And when you think it's tough for you, remember that. He says, you've not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. You've not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to you as sons when he said, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. A scourging is a very strong application of pain and suffering, in case you didn't know it. If you're going to walk with God, you're going to have a cross to bear. 
That cross is going to cause you some pain and suffering. You're going to have pain and suffering when you have to give up the things you love of this world. You're going to have pain and suffering when your friends and your family turn against you. You're going to have pain and sufferings when you have to get out of your comfort zone and do the very thing that God has told you you have to do that you really hate to do, that you don't feel cut out to do, that you're afraid to do, but you're going to have pain and suffering when you do it. And that's the calling of God. So he goes on to say in verse 7, It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, that is, all of his sons, then you are illegitimate children, illegitimate children, and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. All discipline at the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which, may be, which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So he's saying without the sanctification no one will see the Lord. So here's what our goal is. When we're being corrected or disciplined or going through pain and suffering or going through the ordeal of bearing our own cross or having to be obedient to the things that God has instructed us to that are awfully hard to do sometimes, the goal is our sanctification. Our sanctification takes us to heaven. The sanctification is that we're to be made pure and holy and without it, we're not going to see the Lord or ever go to heaven. That's why there's correction in the body of Christ. That's why there's discipline. That's why we point out sin. That's why we call people to an account so they can be saved, so they can enter heaven, so they can be sanctified, so they can be made pure and holy. I want to remind you that the body of Christ, the church, is not a social club where people join just to have friends and have enjoyments and pleasures and company. Most churches are social clubs in America, but it's not supposed to be that way. The body of Christ is supposed to be more like a court than it is a social club. You know, in court, there's seriousness in the courtroom. There's always attorneys, and there's always judges, and there's always uh, officers of the court, police officers, and it's a serious place to go to. When you enter into a court, you know, you don't just go in there lighthearted and silly and carrying on with a bunch of nonsense. You go in there with a serious mind. The body of Christ is supposed to be more like a court than it is a social club. 
A court is a place where right and wrong are judged. A court is a place where the righteous acts are justified and the wicked, wicked acts are condemned. Since American Christianity and its religious system operates like a social club, you will virtually never hear of anyone being rebuked or corrected or turned away from their sins. Their goal is not to separate people from their sins. Their goal is to get them to keep coming to church so they can have numbers because numbers translate into success and numbers also translate into offerings. And offerings translate into better pay for the pastors and offerings translate into more money to build bigger and fancier buildings and to do more programs which makes it look more successful on the outside. It's not about turning people from their sins. It's not about the path being narrow and few there be that find it. It's about the broad way that leads to destruction, to destruction and many that go thereof. So, the people of God are not supposed to be like that. And false pastors, they will never correct your sin, but instead they will tell you you're okay. They'll tell you that you're saved. They'll tell you that you're just a sinner saved by grace. They'll tell you that, you know, you're just fine like you are, even though they'll let you go ahead and just sit there and die. Just let you die in your sins. Because they only want to have church and have the offerings. That's what it's all about to the false pastors. Now, we've been talking about correction. Before you can correct, you have to judge. So like I said, now we've been talking about correction. And before you can correct, you have to judge. But you heard it said that we shall not judge, right? Have we been told don't judge? We've been told we can't judge. Let's see what the scripture says about that, about judging. First of all, I want to go to the very beginning where it says, do not judge lest you be judged. Matthew 7, 1 says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. But if you stop right there, that's the end. You would think that's the end of it. But there's more to be said here. Verse 2 says, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you see there the condition to not judge is you can't judge if you've got your own sins to deal with. If you're in sin, how can you call somebody else out for sin? If you're a jealous person, how can you correct somebody who's jealous? If you're an angry person, how can you speak to someone who has an anger problem? Do you see what he's saying? Get it out of yourself first, then you're able to see clearly how to help the other person. Romans 2 verse 1 says this, Paul said, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. 
But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So there it is again. He's not saying you can't judge. He's saying the judgment of God rightly falls on you when you do the very same thing you're judging someone else for. Now Paul speaking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, he's addressing the church here, who allowed a man who was in adultery, sleeping with his own father's wife in the church, he was a member of the church, and no one was speaking to him about this. And Paul was really upset with them, and here's what he said. He said, I actually wrote to you, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? In other words, those outside the church, those in the world, what do I have to do with judging them? Do you, talking to the Corinthians, to the Christians at Corinth, he says, do you not judge those within the church? They better. But to those who are outside, God judges. Then he says, remove the wicked man from your midst. In other words, he was really upset with them because they weren't doing anything about this. 1 Corinthians 6, in the next chapter, Paul says this, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now he's talking about in the church still. He's still talking to the people in the church. In other words, if you have an issue among you in the church, do you, do you take your brother to court, to the, to the world's courts, or do you not deal with it internally? He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? In other words, among yourselves? Do you not know that we would judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? So here we go. He's saying, can't y'all handle judging what's going on in the church? Can't you see if there's something wrong to deal with it? Can't you see that you don't have to go to the world to try to get some solution? That's why it's wrong to sue a brother in the court of law. Jesus said in John chapter 7 verse 24 concerning judging, He says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, make sure that when you judge, you're seeing it like God sees it, and not just by the way it appears. And I'll give you an example. One time when I was, when I used to have to go to Cookville, Tennessee to get parts for my business, because I had to go up there and pick up a load of them every week or two, one time I had trouble on the road. And the only place I could get to a phone, and I didn't have cell phones in those days, this is a long time ago, was a beer joint. And so I was broke down on the side of the road and I had to walk to this beer joint to use the phone. Now if you'd have come along, you would have saw Don going into a beer joint. And if you'd have judged by appearance, you would have falsely judged me. I wasn't going into the beer joint to drink or to carouse with drunkards. I was going in there to use the phone to call somebody to come and get me. See? So you got to understand you don't judge by appearance. You find out what's going on. You judge with a righteous judgment. 
You look at things the way God sees them and find out what the whole story is before you make a judgment. You don't rush to judgment. You inquire, you ask, you seek, you knock, you search. You do all the same things you do about any other truth until you find out the truth. So, that's why Jesus said judge with a righteous judgment. So, we are to watch out for any sin that may come into our midst. Since Paul made it clear that sin corrupts the body. See, we didn't read this part. If you go back and read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5, he talked about how sin leavens. He says it's like leaven, like leaven leavens, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit, a little sin ruins the whole church. What he's saying is, you got one man in, a, in immorality, and now you're all participating, so to speak, by not dealing with this, you're all guilty. The same thing happened in Joshua. When the children went into the land of, uh, to, to take over the land, the promised land, and they went to battle at Ai, and they got in trouble because they got defeated, and 36 men died in one day, and Joshua fell on his face before the Lord. He called on the Lord. He didn't understand what had happened because they just conquered Jericho without a problem. Now they're losing this little place, and Joshua didn't understand what happened. The Lord said, but there's sin in the camp. There was one man, Achan, one man, who took some things from Jericho that they were not supposed to take. And he had hid them in his tent. It was a secret. And yet God was so upset he was going to let them all die. He was going to leave them and leave them to die until they dealt with the sin that was in the camp. That's how God feels about sin. That's why Paul was saying, get him out of there. Remove the wicked man from your midst. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's why correction is necessary in the body of Christ to save lives, to save souls. So if we see something wrong with one of our brothers or sisters, we should either correct them ourselves if it's appropriate, and it's not appropriate for a young person to necessarily correct an older person. It's not appropriate necessarily for a woman to correct a man. It's not appropriate sometimes for a beginner to correct a, a someone who's been with the Lord for a long time. It's not really proper for a man to correct another woman's wife, another man's wife, unless that's approved by the man and he's with his wife. And so there's different things that are appropriate. But if you are not in a position to correct a person, but you see something wrong, then you should report it to the person that would be appropriate to correct them. And so you either correct them yourself or you report it. And this is something I want to get you to understand. I've heard people say, well, it's none of my business about the trouble I, I was in. It's not, a, it's, no, it's not anybody else's business that I was committing this act or this sin. Oh, yes, it is. It's the whole church's business. If you're in sin, it's my business. It's your business. If somebody's in sin, it's our business. You better believe it's our business. Now, I realize that sometimes there are steps to be taken. Matthew 18 makes that clear. We'll go into that before the, morning's, before the evening's over. But you still have to, you can't say it's not anybody's business. Because if you're in the body of Christ, you're committing sin, it's everybody's business. So you're not supposed to be sinning willfully in the body of Christ. So, well, let me just go ahead and say this. So I don't leave you hanging right there. If somebody has spoken to you privately or you've been talked to privately about your sin, that's the first step. Matthew 18 plainly says, if your brother sins, go to him privately and speak to him. 
If he receives you, you have won your brother. It says, though, but if he doesn't receive you, and here's how you know he doesn't receive you. If he's doing the same thing again, he didn't receive you. So if he didn't receive you, then you go back with two or three witnesses and you speak to him again about this same sin that you spoke to him before about. So this now is the second time this person is being spoken to about this particular sin. Now, it says now if he doesn't receive you, and here's again how you tell if he receives you. It's not if he says thank you. It's not if he says, oh, I repent. That's not receiving you. Receiving you is when he stops sinning. So now that he, if he didn't receive you by you finding out later that now he's doing the same thing again that you've talked to him privately about, that you've had more than one meeting with him about, you've talked to him two or three times now about it, and now he's doing it again, you tell it to the whole church. You bring it before all the men or all the women or the whole body. You, you put it out there. You expose it that he may be put to shame. Hopefully then he repents. That's biblical. I've had people tell me, oh, you're not supposed to tell anybody but me. <laughs> no, I've already told you. We've talked about this three or four times before. And you're still doing it. So don't, don't be deceived about that. So, so it's, <clears throat> it is okay then to report wrongdoing among us. But it is our responsibility to do this for the sake of that person's life and for the sake of the body. <clears throat> but there is, there's nothing wrong, so there's nothing wrong with reporting to other people wrongdoing that somebody else is doing if the purpose is to see that person corrected and that sin dealt with. But I'll tell you when it becomes gossip. It becomes gossip when your motive and purpose is not to correct them or to turn them from their sins, but just to be a tailbearer. Oh, did you know what I saw him do? Or did you hear what I found out about they did? And you're just tailbearing? That's gossip. Mode is altogether different. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 says, But immorality or, imp or any impurity or greed must not even be named among us, as is proper among saints. In other words, God's will is that there be nothing named among us that would be ugly, that would be sinful, that would be impure. shouldn't even be named among us. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but the rather the giving of thanks. And it goes on in verse 11 of that same chapter and says, Paul said, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them. So it's my prayer that if there's any sin among us, even if it's hidden, as they say, in somebody's tent like it was with Achan, if there's any sin in this body, that it'll be exposed. I pray that it be exposed. I pray if it's in any of you or even in me that it would be exposed because that'd be life to us. Let it be exposed. Because we're not a social club. We're not here to make people happy and have a good time. We're here to get our lives saved. 
We're here to get to heaven. This is what this is all about. Get rid of sin so we can live. That's why we have, that's why the body of Christ is formed together. That we all work together and pull together for the same purpose. This is not a social club. It's not about you getting treated in a happy way necessarily. Now you can be happy as long as you do what's right. You can be at peace and be happy doing what's right. So it's a good thing for sin to be exposed so it can be removed. Galatians 5.16 says, Paul said, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you want to, or that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. So when we see any one of us among us operating in the flesh, we should be very, very concerned and be very willing to either correct them or to report it to the person who should correct them because we care about the well-being of that person and of the body. And let me just review with you some of the common things of flesh that we encounter, that we've encountered here at Gateway. Sensuality, for an example. Here's what sensuality is. Obsessive over anything that makes you feel good, like your feelings, your emotions, your games, entertainment, uh, some people over animals, various addictions to things, worldly pleasures, thrill-seeking, and things like this. These are things of sensuality. Idolatry, for an example, is another thing. We have to watch out for idolatry. Idolatry is whatever takes over your heart that you love more than God, that your heart defaults to more than God. It's loving anything more than the Lord or more than His Word or more than His will. Let me tell you something about idolatry. You can always tell when someone has an idol because when you start pointing it out, they get very defensive and start making excuses. It happens every single time because you're touching, as they say, their golden calf. You know, in the wilderness, you know, the children of Israel made a golden calf. That was their idol. Well, we have these little golden calves in our hearts if we don't watch it. And when somebody touches it, then the calf starts kicking you, so to speak. You start having a reaction to what's being said. You'll be making excuses for not doing what is best for God and for your family and for others 
so that you can do what you really want to do. You see, idolatry is all about you getting your own way, doing what you want to do, even though it may not be the best thing for God, for the body of Christ, for your family, or even for your soul. Another thing about idolatry is it's always taking the easy way, doing what you're so comfortable with, rather than going the way of the cross. It's always loving the ways of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the most bride of life. Another problem under sensuality is laziness, slothfulness, and passivity. These are some of the common things we see with the flesh. Not really willing to make the effort to endure hard things are the things that are appropriate for overcoming the way of the cross. It's, about, it's all about giving in to what's easy, making excuses for not doing what you should. I say excuses, excuses, and excuses. The wicked, lazy servant in Matthew 25 was full of excuses. And he did nothing that the Lord wanted him to do, even though he had very little actually required of him. Another problem with the common things of the flesh is just selfishness. Plain old living for yourself. It includes greed, greed over money, greed over having what you want, getting the biggest piece of pie, having your way. Uh, it, it could be things like jealousy, feeling like somebody else got something you didn't get, feeling left out. Uh, it's just all selfishness. Things that come up like that cause, it will give you opportunity to have hurt feelings, being offended, getting angry. And then again, you're not caring for others as much as you're caring for yourself. And by the way, when you see these things, you need to be very alarmed because they are deadly and they're leaven in the body. And Paul so warned the church over and over again about jealousy and strife, strife and jealousy. Because this was a big thing where people are jealous of one another because somebody else gets something or gets to do something or gets to have something that they didn't get. And it's evil. It is pure evil. You see, if some of us, some one of us does something for another person, if somebody gives a meal or some flowers or some food or a book or just helps out in some other way to another person, or there's a little get-together, maybe Reed and I have a get-together, or Mike and Tisa have a get-together, or Kyle and Kenzie or somebody else has a get-together, and they have three or four people over. And I don't get to come, but somebody else gets to come. So what? We should just be happy for whoever got to receive something and whoever got to go to something. Be happy for them. That's what love does. But jealousy is offended because it feels left out. And when we see these kinds of things among us, we need to be extremely concerned because they're deadly. That's not the way of God at all. It's not the way of love. It is extremely selfish. So, Matthew 18, I've already mentioned to you about going to your brother in private, so I won't read those scriptures. I've already told you what it said. So, the question is, comes back again, 
Is it really the church's business for another member to be exposed for their sin? And the answer is yes, after they've been warned a time or two, been visited more than once, it's time to let everybody know or let a certain group of people know. Sometimes it's better just to keep it with the men. Sometimes it's better just to keep it with the women. Sometimes it's better to keep it away from the children. But in a sense, it needs to be exposed in the appropriate way, in the appropriate place, at the appropriate time. So the last thing that the Scripture is inspired and profitable for is for training in righteousness. Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How did they crucify it? They took up their cross, they denied themselves, and they followed Jesus. That's how you did it. That's how they crucified it. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, or envying one another. See, he keeps bringing up that thing about jealousy and envy. It just keeps coming up in the body of Christ. Run from it. In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, again, training in righteousness, this is the picture we need to keep before us. Jesus was talking to the Pharisee lawyer, and the question was, what must I do to have eternal life? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you do this, you've answered correctly, and you will live. You see, love doesn't take advantage of anybody. Love doesn't get angry with anybody. Love doesn't cheat anybody. Love doesn't run in front of anybody. Love doesn't have any road rage. Love is not jealous. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love looks after the best interests of the other person. Love thinks about what's good for the other person more than himself. That's what love does. There's no law against love. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, it says, But now we have faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. So the Scriptures are profitable for training in righteousness because they show us the way we should live. In Matthew 24, verse 13, Jesus said, But it's the one who endures to the end. He will be saved. So I want to tell you and remind you that we live in very dangerous times. So we need to be very careful to stay free of sin, free from the world, and free from the things of the flesh. And every kind of way that would cause us to stumble, we need to avoid it. So, what do you believe? What do you believe tonight about correction? Is correction a good thing or not? And if it's a good thing, are we all willing to embrace it and be thankful for it or not? I'd like to offer a prayer right now for us as a body.
Lord, I'm asking you to bear with us. I also ask, Lord, that you would expose among us any hidden sin that that person may be helped and freed from that sin and be delivered from it, that our body would be made pure and holy. I pray, Lord, that you would give us what we need to become that holy church, the people of God, that are without blemish or wrinkle, that are well-pleasing to you. I pray, Lord, that all of us here would be able to enter into the eternal kingdom and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. But Lord, I know we're not there yet. So I'm asking that you would stir us up to revive us, Lord, to stir our hearts up, to seek you, to pray to you, to call upon you. Stir us up, Lord, to hunger and thirst after truth and righteousness, and to stir us up, Lord, to love one another, to be patient with one another and kind, and not allow, allow anything of the flesh to operate among us, Lord. Give us power. We need power from you, Lord. We need help from you. And I pray, Lord, for all my brothers and sisters, and for myself as well, that we would be found pleasing in your sight. But please, Lord, show us anything that is hindering us from becoming that people. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Great Deception Podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information, for my blog, and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine The Great Deception.